Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. to you. It is the 1st of February. Paul Perot and I were discussing prior to the show whether or not that means we have arrived at the second month of a new year or just the 13th month of a year that we are still trying to escape. So, I don't know. Tomorrow's Groundhog Day, so maybe we will discuss that tomorrow. Uh, where in the word are you today? So, driving uh, to, I know it sounds unusual, like driving to church, right? <clears throat> we are driving to church where I live now. At least some of us, uh, many, many, many people still attending via the live stream, but um, but an increasing number of people back uh, physically in worship, obviously socially distanced, you know, every other pew, distance between families, those kinds of things. But as we were driving to church yesterday, we were anticipating the baptism of my 17-year-old uh, stepdaughter, Eliana, and one of the conversations that uh, she provoked was, um, well, what do you do during your devotional time? Like she and she directed the question to me, and so I thought to myself, "Wow, I guess I've you know that's such that's something that um, maybe we haven't talked about enough. Obviously, we have talked about it some, um, but obviously not enough." And so I shared with her what my devotional experience was yesterday morning, prior to um, you know prior to our being in the car together. And so I'll just share that with you. Uh, I'm not a um, uh, all of your prayers have to be closed eyed. Uh, and so yesterday morning, my my prayers happened to be open-eyed out the window. Um, the the buds on the trees are actually getting fat, even though it's snowing where I live today. Um, but you can you can you can already anticipate spring. Like it's it's there. It's in it's it's in those trees already. It's there. There are evidences of. Uh, of crocus, there are evidences of um, of daffodils, even little green shoots. Um, I don't know if those too early for them, but there you go. John chapter one was my um, reading yesterday morning, the very opening verses of John chapter one, and and so I'm going to share those with you this morning and some of my reflections. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Skipping ahead four verses to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. 
for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Oh, only the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. All right, so um, I spent um, a long time yesterday morning reveling, reveling in these verses. In the beginning. Now, just pause and consider that for just a moment. In the beginning. Before there was anything that is, in the beginning. Where does your mind go? Where does your heart go? Where does your knowledge of Scripture go? Well, mine took me to Genesis 1 in the very, you know, in the, in the beginning. The Genesis, the beginning, where we read in the beginning. And the next word, God. In the beginning, God. Now, you could spend a lot of devotional time right there. In the beginning, God. You know, anything could follow that, literally. But what follows it is what God did, is a verb, is an action. And that action literally changed everything, created everything, changed everything, initiated everything, inaugurated everything. And so what is that verb? In the beginning, God what? Well, you know the verse. In the beginning, God said. Which could also be followed by anything. Anything. God could have said anything in the beginning. But what did God say? Let there be. Again, that could be followed by anything. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God said. And what was it that God said? He could have said anything, and he said, let there be. Let there be what? Or who? That blank could have literally been filled by anything. But what did God say? Let there be light. And with that light came life. And with that light comes knowledge. Reread the opening verses 1 through 18 of John chapter 1 and think about the beginning and God and what God has said and how we know him and light and life and grace and truth and how you know God because of Jesus. Sheridan Voicey is waiting in the wings. He doesn't know this yet, but I'm going to ask him if British Vogue is correct. Has making dinner replaced commuting? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Well, welcoming back uh, Sheridan Voicey today. He is a commentator on the BBC, among other things. He is also the author of Reflect with Sheridan, which is a devotional that we have talked about recently here on the show. Sheridan, welcome back. Good to be with you, Carmen. And you've really thrown me. I was wondering what that British Vogue article is all about. So I haven't had a chance to read it. You need to give me a little bit of a fill-in as to what that's all about. Well, apparently, um, many people, um, because they're no longer driving to work, they're using, they're replacing that time to actually cook and learn to cook and enjoy cooking. Uh-huh. 
and then uh-huh. feasting together and fellowshipping together, like with the people in their own household. So what was for dinner last night? <laughs> what was for dinner last night? Let me, my wife and I have actually just started a diet. Uh, we feel like living, breathing, walking cliches at the moment because we started <laughs> okay. on January the 1st. <laughs> and so we've, I'm just trying to think, what did we know that was? Oh, I know what it was. That's right. We had to do extra exercise to get ready for it. It was um, bratwurst mm. with mashed potato and then oh. sauerkraut. So you have the this sauerkraut. This is quite a diet. This sounds good. <laughs> you know, actually, it's horrendous. We had the leftover uh, bratwurst <laughs> in the freezer. We had to eat them up. They're terrible for calories. But we did lots of it. We did like a 90-minute walk yesterday. So we like burnt 250 calories. So we had a little bit of a store there in the in in the, uh, the calorie yeah, so that's how that's what we did last night. So actually, it's that's not what we're going to have anymore. Um, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think there is something to that to that Vogue article um, because the UK is now in its third lockdown, and we are still all still in our houses. We can't go anywhere. You know, we're going out. You know, for an hour, ninety minutes, or something at max. You know, during the day for a walk or something, just to keep our sanity. And more and more people are turning to to cooking, particularly, I think, in the big cities. I think just like in the United States, there has been in recent years kind of a swing towards prepackaged foods and takeaways and all of those things that are terrible. And as a result, during lockdown, of course, we've all gained the COVID kilos. Um, But a good side of that, of course, is that, you know, sometimes the commute, particularly, say, in London, getting out of London, getting into London, you know, it might be an hour and a half, two hours drive home. And if Mm -hmm. you've now got that at home and cooking with your family has kind of replaced that time, what a wonderful outcome to have had happened as a result of this COVID crisis. Absolutely. All right. So um, we're going to talk about turning problems into a quest um, in just a moment. You you guys can can find what Sheridan is writing um, day in and day out at Sheridan Voicey, V-O-Y-S-E-Y dot com. And we're going to return to our conversation in just a moment. Continuing my conversation with Sheridan Voicey, the first time that he and I uh, talked on the program, we talked about a book that he wrote um, entitled Resurrection Year. Um, he has since written other books that we have talked about, but I wanted to um, return to that conversation um, and use one of the things that's now posted at uh, at Sheridan's blog site, which is SheridanVoicey.com, turning problems uh, into quests, and just revisit this topic, Sheridan, of how we, when we are facing something in our lives that is um, unwelcome, unexpected, seemingly insurmountable, um, how that can become for us a quest that is hope-filled. And this is the very essence of the gospel in so many ways, is that it's our God who is the clever one, who is able to t- take this rubbish that we're being dealt with and to be able to recycle it into something profound, profoundly beautiful, a kind of beauty that otherwise would not be brought into the world. And, you know, a key verse for me with all of this is Ephesians 5 and the first couple of uh, verses. Uh, Therefore, uh, follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, 
as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, there's three key ideas in that. You know, follow God's example. There's the call to character. We are to grow into the character of God. We are to follow his example, become who he is, which is a person of compassion, grace, kindness, and all the other wonderful qualities that he reveals to Moses in Exodus 34 up on the mountain there. Uh, as dearly loved children, that's our ultimate identity. And uh, before we are writers, speakers, broadcasters, stay-at-home mums, educators, artists, engineers, uh, we are dearly loved children. And that's the identity that can never be taken away from us. And then walk in the way of love. That's our ultimate purpose. Whatever we're doing, that's what we're called to do. But the second part of that verse is the key thing for us talking about today. To love other people just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, we can all agree that Jesus raising a little girl from the dead was an act of love or cleansing a leper was an act of love. All of those wonderful things we read him, him doing in the Gospels were, were great acts of love. But the ultimate act of love was him going to the cross for us and suffering that great indignity of Roman crucifixion. And yet what came out of it? What came out of it was our forgiveness, our redemption, the beginning of the whole redemption of the, of the whole cosmos, the whole creation really has begun at that moment. And it came out of loss, out of lack, out of the crucifixion of the Son of God. So we are to kind of walk in the way of love just as he did. Could it be, Carmen, that the very difficult things that we go through are the very things that God wants to use to bring our greatest contribution into the world as well. Now, you mentioned Resurrection Year. That's the story of Merrin and my wife, my wife Merrin and I are going through 10 years of infertility, never getting a child at the end of that 10 years. And we tried everything. And yet God has turned that around uh, and made it the ultimate source of contribution, really, for both of us. Um, we've been able to see so many people helped and healed and find faith or stay with faith rather than walking off into atheism or something along those lines by simply sharing that story and how God has turned it around to us. Um, so that's the, that's the essence of our, of our God's cleverness is he can take the worst things in our lives and he can turn them into wonderful opportunities. Um, yeah, I've got so many stories I could tell you as to how that's happened to other people's lives too. So Sheridan, um, I want to, um, I want to ask you a question about Marin in just a minute, because I know that she has been uh, involved in the research related to the COVID-19, one of the COVID-19 vaccines. So I want to get a, mm -hmm. little, a brief update on that in just a moment. But I want to share with you um, the walk in the way of love. Um, I I heard a discussion among a group, group of teenagers <clears throat> recently. Not They were not reflecting on this verse of scripture, but they were talking about people who were in their way. And I heard one one girl who I was aware was a Christian, and you could tell she was struggling to find the words and give the input. Um, but she finally ginned up the courage to say to her friends, "Those people are not in our way. Like mm. we're we're supposed to make disciples along the way. Those people are in in our way, so that we can, you know, like help them find the one who is the way." Like, I was stunned. Wow. I was like, I wow. had this moment where I was just like, okay, that is such wisdom pouring forth from that little heart and mind. And I am so proud of her in this moment. And, um, but when we, when we think about Jesus, like he never treated anybody as an interruption. Every, right. every person along the way was a ministry opportunity, an opportunity to 
reveal God's love and grace and mercy and kindness and um, that God never gives up on a situation or a person. And I just, um, so I just think that when we talk about walking in the way of love and loving others as God in Christ has loved us, part of that is making sure we don't regard anyone else at any point along the along our quest um, as a person who is in our way. Instead, they're, yeah. they're, right, God has, there's a divine appointment there of some kind that I don't want to miss. What a wonderfully redemptive way to look at it. You know, um, I want that teenager's name. I want to sit down and learn from her. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. That's right. And it brings us hope as well. I mean, well, if, her name if, is Cadence, we, which I also Cadence. just think is kind of cool. Isn't that a cool, okay. I mean, first of all, like, right? Yeah, I know. Her yeah, parents yeah, were yeah. thinking about something, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. I think it gives, gives us hope as well when we take that perspective. If we do take that kind of this thing, this person is in my way, then, gosh, we're going to be defensive and we're, all, all the negative barriers are going to go up for us. If we were to take Cadence's approach and actually say, well, no, they're, they're a person of love, that we're to love in the midst of this. And, of course, it's so easy for us to talk about that when we're in the midst of those difficult people. It can be very difficult to love them. But if we can take that approach, then it can give us hope, too, that there is the possibility of change or even redemption. I think of this this lady that came up to me. Um, her name was Kate. She came up after a, I'd spoken at a conference on these kinds of things and how God can take our broken dreams, turn them into new beginnings, those kinds of things. And she came up with her mum. And Kate was too distraught to be able to talk. So her mum started talking for her. And the mum said, uh, look, we've both been very touched by what you've shared today. Um, we have a question. Uh, just a few months ago, Kate's husband was arrested on indecent dealings with youngsters. And as a result of that, Kate has not just lost her husband, but she's also lost her daughter, who somehow thinks that she was somehow maybe you know implicitly involved in this somehow. She's lost her friends. They don't want to be near anything of this nature. So they've all split. She's lost everybody around her. Here's our question, Sheridan. What good could God bring from this? Mm. Now, I don't know about you, Carmen, but a question like that, oh, my goodness, the last thing I'm going to do is start rattling out the cliches just to fill the empty space and the, the awkward silence between us, you know? So I started praying silently, God, give me something. Uh, and I started asking her some questions. And I said, you know, Kate, your sense of betrayal must be absolutely immense. Your husband broke your trust. Your friends have broken your trust. And that's when it started to form this nebulous thought in the back of my mind that started to crystallize into something clear I said, Kate, what if you were to treat this problem, this horrendous, horrendous betrayal as a quest? If you were to learn to rebuild trust after it's been so badly broken in your life, what if you were to face that quest with God? What about if you were to document all the highs and the lows and all the lessons that you learn along the way? What if you were to do that? If you were to do that, you might just help others rebuild the trust that they have had broken in their lives after their own betrayals, that could be a way that this could be turned around into something good. And I remember Kate looked at her mum and then her mum looked at her and they looked at each other for a, a moment and then Kate finally spoke and she said, yeah, you know what? That probably could be something I could do. And hope was born. This is walking in the way of love, in the way of Jesus, in the sense that 
if we are to tra- kind of face our problems, face these difficult people, these difficult circumstances, as an opportunity to learn and gather and then pass on gifts to others as a result of what we've been through, that's how it can be redeemed. And this is why I think it's so important for us to think about how we can uh, face our problems and turn them into quests. Sheridan, that is so um, that is so redemptive, and I have uh, I have two people in mind already that um, I'm gonna, that I'm going to personally share that um, share that with. Um, all right, let me ask you a quick question uh, about Marin. So, uh, how how are things where she works, and how are she and other researchers feeling about the rollout of the vaccines? Yeah, well, you know, of course, there's only so much that um, my professional wife is able to tell me about so many of those inner workings. But I can tell you, this past week, we were supposed to have it off, uh, you know, have have the week as as a break. But poor old Marin, she had to work every single day because, you know, the, the COVID vaccine trial continues and the questions mm-hmm. of it, you know, continue to be asked around the world. So, uh, you know, this past week, it's been Europe and raising questions and over here and over there. And and so uh, there never really is a moment's break. So I'd appreciate your prayers for her because um, she's a re- I think she's probably gone about 11 months now with about maybe one week's holiday. Uh, and like all of her colleagues, they're just continuing to work around the clock to make sure that this works. And there's new research to do all the time, new um, age groups to focus on. Um, now, of course, we've got new strains. We've got the Kent strain. We've got the Brazilian strain, we've got the South African strain of coronavirus. And of course, the big question is now, how do do these various vaccines work with these new strains? And thankfully, the Oxford one is coming up pretty good. Um, But, you know, the the research continues. So we'd really appreciate your prayers for her and the team, because there is no let up. They are just continuing to work around the clock. Let's do let's do that. Um, Father, we come before you, my brother Sheridan and I, we lift up Marin, we lift up her colleagues, we lift up those like her around the world in so many um, environments and settings, um, from Oxford to Pfizer and uh, Moderna and AstraZeneca and Janssen and Novavax and others. Father, people who are working on uh, vaccines to distribute to people around the world um, in order that our bodies would be prepared to fend off uh, this COVID-19. And so, Father, we simply ask that you would bless their work, your hand would be upon them, keep them safe, um, that you would you would direct their attention in all the right ways, on all the right days, um, for all the right outcomes. And we entrust all of this process to you. Thank you for Marin and her diligence. Thank you for Sheridan and his support of her and his being with us here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, my brother. Hey, we look forward to the next that. conversation. Oh, look forward to it too. Thanks so much, Carolyn. All right, thanks. Absolutely. We'll be right back. Well, there's any number of things going on in the uh, political world that I find interesting to talk about this morning. I have a week's worth of headlines, obviously, stored up to discuss. David French from The Dispatch, who writes at The French Press, will be here next. When you have an older teen spinning out of control and not responding to your discipline, it may mean you have a very important choice before you. You can let that teen stay at home and wreak havoc in your household, or you can ask him to leave. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. It's a difficult decision, but parents shouldn't allow one out-of-control teen to destroy the good things going for the rest of the family. Sometimes the best option for an older teen is to release them. 
let them go. And as parents, we should pray for their growth and development in the world, in the ways they weren't grasping at home. Scary, yes, but sometimes a child won't listen to our advice until he gets to the end of himself. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. My favorite thinkers to read and friends to talk with is David French. You can read what he's writing at the Dispatch at FrenchPress.thedispatch.com. David, welcome back. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So, among um, among other things, you're an attorney. Yes. 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 Okay. I, so I'm, I'm not a full time litigator like I used no, to be. But, I, I know, but uh, you've been I'm, to I'm the you've been to there. the law school. Yeah, you've been to the law school. <laughs> you have the yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me ask you: Can I start with a question about um, if you were going to represent a person um, in something like an impeachment hearing in front yes. of the U.S. Senate? Would you want more than like a week to prepare? <laughs> well, of. Yes. Okay. Course. So let's just brief. Let's just brief our audience in the uh, the former president uh, Donald Trump facing an impeachment hearing in the United States Senate. Briefs are due next week. I think a week from tomorrow. And over the weekend, um, five attorneys left his legal defense team. And last night, a couple of uh, additional people were then announced. Um, so just talk about the kind of preparation that goes into that should go into this kind of. Um, uh, event and and how quickly these individuals will now these attorneys will now need to move in order to be prepared. Well, there's bad news for the former president and there's good news for the former president. The bad news is that's not enough time to prepare a proper defense. Um, I mean, now you know lawyers are are used to getting cases sent cases in sometimes that require very fast work before you get into court, you know, like you're filing for an injunction immediately or a temporary restraining order. And so, you know, they'll they'll do a good enough job. It's just far less than ideal. And it's certainly at a disadvantage compared to the impeachment managers who have legal staffs that have been working on this, you know, basically nonstop since January 7th, since right after the incident itself. So in that sense, they're they're at a disadvantage. The advantage, of course, that they have is that they already know that the jury is inclined to acquit their client. So Mm. um, most of the time when you walk into a courtroom, you don't know what the jury thinks. And here you had a vote um, where only five Republicans, a vote, you know, days ago, where only five Republicans voted not to dismiss the case. Now, that does not necessarily mean that only five Republicans are votes to convict the, uh, you know, the former president. It is, but it does mean that um, there is an uphill climb for the House impeachment managers trying to get a conviction. So in that sense, it's, you know, if you did not know where the jury was leaning, you might say, well, this is a, this is a, a, a impossible disadvantage to overcome. But when you know, apparently, how the journey, jury is leaning, it would make his defense team feel better. Okay, now I am reading at 
frenchpress.thedispatch.com a piece entitled Discerning the Difference Between Christian Nationalism and Christian yes. Patriotism. And wow, I think that helping people differentiate those two things is so timely and important. So I'm just going to let you um, lay out your argument. Yeah. So this is this is an issue that has, I mean, ever since January 6th and really before January 6th had started to emerge, we were having arguments about the difference between nationalism and patriotism during the Trump during the Trump term. And then they just really roared to the front after January 6th. And and a lot of people, it's kind of a their their terms are kind of tough to parse. And nationalism is what I would say the negative side, negative patriotism, and patriotism is a positive virtue. And here here is the definition. Here's an academic definition of of Christian nationalism, and it's this, and it comes from a, um, a historian named Matthew McCullough. It says, understanding of America an understanding of American identity and significance held by Christians, wherein the nation, the American nation, is a central actor in the world historical purposes of the Christian God. In other words, it puts the United States of America as central to God's purposes. Um, but what what uh, historian Thomas Kidd from Baylor notes is that there's not actually a large number of people who think through their patriotism in theological terms. It's not, you know, in fact, if you ask most people, is it more important to serve God or country? You know, most people, even those who are actually Christian nationalists would say, oh, oh, you serve God over country. He says it's more, and I agree with him, it's more a sense of conviction, a visceral reaction, an emotional commitment more than it is sort of a rationally chosen theological stance. And and actually, C.S. Lewis talked about this a great deal, and he talked about that there is a kind of patriotism that doesn't just produce affection for your own home, but it also produces affection for others. And it's this love of your home. It's this love, love of your neighbors. It's the um, it's a love that moves us beyond self-love. It moves us beyond love of family, and it introduces a kind of selflessness that extends to others. And he says, it becomes militant only to protect what it loves. And this is C.S. Lewis talking. In any mind which has a penny worth of imagination, it produces a good attitude towards foreigners. How can I love my home without coming to realize that other men, no less rightly, love theirs? And then but then Lewis keeps on going and he says there's a there's a kind of love for your country that begins to get dangerous. And he says there's a kind that has a particular attitude to your country's past, which is not quite as good as love of home, because it will sometimes you'll be biased towards a false story, one that ignores the shabby and shameful doings. Those are those are Lewis's words in favor of the heroic stories. And it can give you a false impression of your own home. And then there's the most dangerous permutation, which Lewis calls the belief that our own nation in sober fact has long been and still is markedly superior to all others. And Lewis talks about how that can produce a kind of mindset that can grow violent even. And this was something, again, you know, sounds quite familiar. And so what we end up happening in a, in a kind of Christian nationalism is a Christian nationalism ends up being this deep emotional attachment to a very particular exclusive culture that features a skewed version of history 
that sort of only sees the virtues of your country and can't see the vices and fills you with a sense of marked superiority about your nation and that it's a false sense of marked superiority about your nation. And that causes people to get very panicked as they cling to that particular vision of their country. Uh, that's a super long answer, but that's <laughs> that's sort of trying to sort out a tough issue. So I'm talking with David French. If you have not yet read Divided We Fall, America's um, secession threat and how to restore our nation, um, if you read it now, you will think he's prescient because you will say, um, oh, those potential dangers that he warned about, those um, angry fringe extremists actually are violent and actually are willing to um, to act against neighbor and countrymen. Um, and that's what we saw on January the 6th. And we can't turn away from that. We have to turn right. toward it and we have to deal with it. And so that's what David French and I are doing. Um, the piece that he has posted right now at frenchpress.thedispatch.com um, is, is actually a really good um, summary of it, discerning the difference between Christian nationalism and Christian patriotism, because both David and I are going to say uh, patriotism is a good thing. And Christians right. who are patriotic, are that's a good thing. Christian nationalism, that is not a good thing. And we need to be able to tell the difference. And we need to be able to yep. look in the mirror and see which one we are and, um, and, and help one another in the midst of that. So I'm going to continue my conversation in just a moment with David French. We'll be right back. It's like the prize, sunrise, waiting on the other side of the darkest night. Don't ever lose hope. Continuing my conversation with David French. You can find him at thedispatch.com. Um, David, I'm wondering if you ever considered in the subhead to your book the word insurrection instead of the word <laughs> secession. And so if I were to uh, read the title as divided we fall, America's insurrection threat and how right. to restore our nation, um, it actually would suddenly be easier for people to understand what happened on January the 6th. Yeah. You know, what happened on January 6th is the kind of thing that we see happen in other countries that tells so us. I have a... Myanmar, so I have Myanmar and Russia on my list. Right. Where we, you know, right, where we see these things unfolding. Yeah. So it's think of it this way. If you saw if you were watching television and you saw someone um, taking over parliament in Great Britain and storming parliament to stop the transfer of power between prime ministers, you would say something is seriously wrong with Britain. You wouldn't say, oh, wow, you know, a few people got out of control, nothing to worry about. You would say something is seriously wrong because that is not something that happens in healthy nations, period. That's just not something that happens in healthy nations. And so this is the kind of thing that you would that people that historians would look back on and say, this is where we moved beyond sort of the warning signs to the signal flares, to the uh, you know, to the people jumping up and down and shouting in the night, something is wrong, something is wrong, something is wrong. And and the thing when I wrote my book is I did not anticipate American divisions growing so much wider, so much more quickly in, say, the last six months of 2020 as they did. I saw that the long-term trends were moving us towards a flashpoint. I did not know those trends would accelerate so quickly in these last six months. 
But we have to look at that as the alarm bell in the night. This is no longer sort of academics looking at various cultural trends and saying, huh, I think we have a problem here. This is now the problem is right smack up in her face. And how do we deal with it? So you are also um, a person with military experience. And I'm I'm wondering, um, as I, you know, as I read headlines, let's say about these two individuals, 43 and 31, um, working guys from New York, self-identified as members of the Proud Boys, um, they were already facing um, other charges related to their involvement at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. They are now facing enhanced federal charges um, related to conspiracy. Right. And at least in one case, one of those individuals is a is a former member of the U.S. military. That's actually yeah. a part of the storyline that we are hearing in relationship to a number of individuals who have been charged related to their involvement on January the 6th. And let me be quick to say, I'm in no way, shape or form condemning the U.S. military. Um, sure. I have Marines in my family. Like, right, this is not what this is about. This is about acknowledging that something is going on here that we have to pay attention to. Yeah. So there's a couple of things, one that should be reassuring to people and one that should be troubling. The reassuring thing is, look, the the culture of the U.S. military amongst all of our major institutions is probably more intact and better functioning than virtually any other, as, as I said, virtually any other major institution in American life. Um, there is no no danger of the military jumping onto one side or the other in our great political divide. As of the general consensus in the military is sort of it's apart from and appalled by what's happening, that that this is something that's that is causing great alarm for the country on the part of military leadership that has no inclination to get involved in sort of between the in the culture war battle. Um, so that's the reassuring thing that the the dangerous thing is that there is a culture, a subculture of what would you call post-military folks, people who have retired, people who've um, you know, been discharged honorably or otherwise from the military, who have really embraced this role that they call, quote-unquote, oath keepers, that in essence that they, they believe they're still under the commands of their oath to defend the United States and the, to defend the Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic, and they then turn their anger on their political opponents at home, believing that they are domestic enemies of the Constitution. And this is a movement that has taken hold amongst, and it's not just Oath Keepers, but it's a culture. There is a sort of a loose organization called Oath Keepers that does this. And they've, you know, they've turned their sights on, on cops, on former military, and there is a loose network of people, either under the Oath Keepers banner or Proud Boys or otherwise, who have used their military experience and even their abused their military oath to sort of form this paramilitary radical organization uh, that is a very is, you know, at one point was sort of looked on as fringe and weird and now should be looked on as extremely dangerous. Um, all right, David. Um, there's so many things that I'd love to talk with you about. Can I can I just ask you a question about when we look at what is happening, particularly in Russia, and the passion that people have to live free of the yoke of oppression? Can you just right. speak like on the uh, sort of the positive side of the fight <laughs> for freedom? Yeah. Well, they, you know, the the idea of not just 
freedom. But I think one of the key thing elements in, in Russia and otherwise, freedom and justice, mm. uh, because one of the things that attaches to authoritarianism is injustice. The idea that your prosperity, your liberty, all of every everything that matters to you essentially rests at the whim of the strongman, the whim of the leader, that the, your national fortunes rest at the whim and the and the desires of the strongman. You know, that is something that we've never experienced in this country. We've always taken for granted this, you know, for example, the peaceful transition of power, the core exercise of the Bill of Rights, you know, although it can be infringed in places and in communities in the U.S. that most of us have enjoyed this core exercise of the Bill of Rights. And just imagine that that's all gone and that you would could be subject to completely arbitrary seizure in the night, that you would have no confidence of a fair trial, that you would have no ability to say what you truly believe without fear of that seizure in the night. It's hard for us to even put ourselves into that place. And you know, the people of Russia, I mean, this is something that has been part of their reality for so very long. And and then they're right up next to these nations where there is no fear. There is there is liberty. There is a, a uh, there is a rule of law. There is justice. And so there's this constant contrast between the reality of Russia and the r- reality of, say, you know, the nation of Germany or, uh, you know, the nations of Western Europe, of France that enjoy so much greater liberty. And then now we see this crackdown in Hong Kong because Hong Kong has been a even after the, the British surrendered it to the People's Republic of China. Hong Kong has been a free sort of substate there right next to the People's Republic, a reminder of the, to the people of China of what liberty can look like. And now there's a crackdown in Hong Kong. And so I think that contrast between liberty and justice versus oppression and injustice, it's a constant source of instability for authoritarian regimes. And that that the site of liberty, the site of justice is a, you know, creates an aspiration in the citizens of authoritarian regimes for something better. David French, thank you um, so much. As always, uh, I I have my eye on Hong Kong watching the uh, now tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of people who will move from Hong Kong to Great Britain and maybe other places around the world as well. Um, It's uh, going to be a pretty astounding um, brain drain in that nation um, if that if that continues. All right. Hey, David, we got to leave it right there. Thank you, as always, so much. You guys can find David at FrenchPress.TheDispatch.com. We'll be right back. All right. That's hour one. Stay tuned for hour two. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.